Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Emma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, and this is a program that we're doing with uh, SHARE Cancer Support and Cancer Care, and this program is on Cervical Cancer Treatment Advances, and today's program is, was made possible by, through an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have uh, wonderful speakers on our program today. And um, before I introduce our first speaker, I do want to actually acknowledge how many people are on the call. We have, we have over 200 participants on the call. You come mostly from the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and we also have and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Colombia, Ghana, India, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Florida International University, Herbert Wertheim College of Medicine. And Dr. Runowitz will be addressing an overview of cervical cancer, including diagnosis and staging and current standard of care in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options, and uh, lastly, the importance of communicating with your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you, and thank you for <clears throat> including me in this teleconference with my uh, well-recognized colleagues. Uh, as a background, cancer of the uterine cervix, or cervical cancer, is the third most common gynecologic cancer in the United States. The global incidence varies based on the presence of screening programs and HPV vaccination. Human papillomavirus is central to the development of cervical neoplasia and can be detected in almost 100% of cervical cancers. The diagnosis of cervical cancer is made by histologic evaluation of a cervical biopsy by a pathologist, um, and Dr. Kerr will elaborate on that. The most common histologic types of cervical cancer are squamous cell and adenocarcinoma. The incidence of invasive cervical adenoma and its variants has increased dramatically over the past few decades, particularly in young patients. Dr. Kerr will provide additional details and information on the types of cervical cancer and will describe the role of the pathologist in the diagnosis and management of cervical cancer as an integral part of the team. Staging is important to establish um, the right management and treatment. In resource-limited settings, staging is clinical based on physical exam, a limited number of endoscopic diagnostic procedures, which may include an exam under anesthesia, proctoscopy, cystoscopy, and less common, uh, a hysteroscopy, and basic imaging studies, chest radiograph, and IVP. Um, however, in resource abundance settings like the United States, based on the 2018 staging, the patient now may additionally be scheduled for other imaging studies, which may include a CT scan, a magnetic resonance imaging or MRI, and a positron emission tomography or PET scan, and pathologic findings. The initial treatments are based on the stage and determination of risk factors. So if this patient is determined to be low risk, she will have the option for surgery for stage 1A, 1B, and 1B2 with measuring, the tumor measures less than four centimeters. In that case, the surgery is a radical hysterectomy, lymphadenectomy done by a gynecologic oncologist 
who is a physician trained specifically to do these radical procedures. Radiation therapy is also an alternative option depending on the medical condition of the patient and the options available in the area that the patient lives. Intermediate risk is our patients are often uh, recommended to have a combination of chemotherapy and radiation with a platinum-based regimen. Some advocate <clears throat> for primary surgery followed by adjuvant chemoradiation, and adjuvant means it comes after the surgery. If the patient is high risk, <clears throat> chemoradiation is given, um, and the chemotherapy will be stopped after the radiation is completed. There were some studies in the past that had adjuvant giving the chemotherapy after the radiation, but um, data since has shown that that is not needed. After treatment, the, the uh, patient will undergo routine surveillance, which includes physical exams, imaging, and biopsies are as indicated. If the patient presents with recurrent disease, they, that can be local, which usually will present with symptoms of bleeding or discharge, or it could be spread beyond the, the pelvis. And the patient may be asymptomatic or may have symptoms depending on the site of the metastases. In recurrent disease, if it's local, confined to the pelvis, the patient may be offered radiation if they had surgery as the first option, or they may be offered surgery. Um, for metastatic disease, disease that's outside of the pelvis, Dr. Einstein will present the role of new therapies, including bevacizumab, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and other new and novel therapies for patients that, where the disease has spread beyond the pelvis or recurred following initial therapy. It's important that the patient understand and learn about clinical trials at this point, because there may be a clinical trial which will be a, a good option for the patient and help to advance our knowledge of metastatic treatment for cervical cancer. For patients with advanced or recurrent cervical trials, I cannot overemphasize the importance of clinical trials. Clinical trials are research studies that involve patients and offer state-of-the-art therapy. The patient is not a guinea pig. Anytime you or a loved one need treatment for cancer, clinical trials are an attractive option. You just go online and you search for clinical trials nearest uh, to you. Um, one of the websites, and maybe it will be on the um, Cancer Care website, is um, cancer.gov, and you just go to clinical trials. It's important that you communicate with your healthcare team any issues that may arise. So if you haven't gone through menopause and you have um, radiation, you may end up with premature menopause, or if your ovaries are removed, um, you may end up with premature menopause, menopausal symptoms, uh, painful intercourse. Um, and these are things that are easily treatable. And if you discuss it with your physician or healthcare provider, uh, they, they, these symptoms can be remedied. Treatment for premature menopause or sexual pain or discomfort may include hormone treatments or just estrogen alone if the uterus has been removed. Thank you again for including me in this very important uh, call. Dr. Mesner will now introduce the next speaker, Dr. Einstein. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz. That was a superb, uh, stellar presentation, really setting the stage for today's program and with lots of great information. So thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Mark Einstein. And Dr. Einstein is professor and chair of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive health, Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. And Dr. Einstein will be addressing combination treatments, new and emerging treatment approaches, how precision medicine and testing inform your treatment decisions, and preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Einstein. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and, and I thank you to, to Cancer Care Organization and the sponsors for putting this important program on, and I want to thank all of you that are out there that are listening, either for yourselves or your family or your friends or for some general knowledge so that you could really try to help yourselves or your family or your community, and I look forward to entertaining and discussing some of your specific questions with regards to what are topics that could probably take up hours of our time, but we're trying to sort of condense it into a, a small amount of time. Um, I, I've been asked to, to talk about some of the combination treatments, and Dr. Ronowitz gave a wonderful introduction to, to how we take care of cervical cancer. And just, you know, thinking broadly, cervical cancer was the number one cancer of killer women in the early 1900s, and it still remains the number one or number two cancer killer of women in much of the world. Um, we have really had a lot of improvements with preventing cervix cancer. And as much as we, we spend a lot of time talking about treatments, um, really talking about the importance of prevention is, is critically important, too, and we're happy to talk a little bit about that. And I know we've had some conversations about, about prevention in the past. As Dr. Ronowitz had mentioned, with regards to uh, primary presentations of some of the more locally advanced cervical cancer, Typically, uh, we treat these cervical cancers and when patients present with this with a combination of radiation therapy, which includes not only external beam radiation therapy, which is radiation outside the pelvis, but also brachytherapy, which goes after the central tumor. And, and if there has been any dramatic improvements in treatment paradigms in the United States, it has to do with how we do the treatment planning and we do the treatment planning to minimize some of the toxicities and side effects related to radiation therapy, uh, which is incredibly specific and incredibly targeted. In addition to the radiation therapy, we give a little touch of chemotherapy. So this is a combination that is critically important for the beginning, and actually Dr. Runowitz had actually done some of the initial trials showing that if we just give a little touch of chemotherapy, not necessarily the kind of chemotherapy that makes you lose your hair or have some of the symptoms of full-dose systemic therapy, but a little touch of what we would consider radiosensitizing chemotherapy, it makes the radiation far better, all right? It's called radiosensitizing radiation, all right? It works in synergy to make the radiation better, to have improved local control and decrease the chance for having a recurrence of disease. In the recurrent setting, that's, when, that's what we've actually been seeing, um, a, a number of new and innovative strategies for how we manage this. Over, over decades, we were managing uh, either recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer with a combination of chemotherapies that are, that are commonly used not just for, for cervix cancer, but other cancers as well. And that's a platinum-based chemotherapy as well as, as, as something called paclitaxel. And uh, we've been using this for years. And, and after a large clinical trial, and Dr. Ronowitz mentioned the importance of clinical trials, I, I do want to stress that almost everything that we do in Juwan Oncology, I, five years ago I did different things. Okay, and why is that? Because we use the clinical trial data to guide our evidence-based management of patients. Okay, so when we're talking about clinical trials today that are particularly late-stage clinical trials, these are potentially the treatments of tomorrow, and that's one of the reasons why um, we are encouraging that for folks to actually discuss with your providers the potential for clinical trials. Now, getting back to what we do in the in the recurrent or metastatic setting, based on one of the large clinical trials by the National Cancer Institute supported gynecologic oncology group, we realized that using a targeted therapy that targets actually the 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 vessels of the tumor, all right, to decrease the chance that the tumor will actually be able to feed, you know, it, it gets blood and nutrients by feeding off through those vessels and developing those new vessels, and those new vessels don't grow as much. This is, these are a VEGF inhibitor called bevacizumab. Some of you know it by the name Avastin. Um, by adding Avastin, we could actually increase survival in cervical cancer by a, about a third, okay, which is a dramatic increase. I mean, sometimes on clinical trials, we sometimes get excited about small wins and improvement in survival, maybe 15 or 20 percent. But when, you, when you're talking about that dramatic of an improvement, it, it immediately got fast-tracked by the FDA for, for approval. And, and for, for now over a decade, that has been part of sort of the clinical standards that we use for 
um, for recurrence in metastatic cervix cancer. Relatively recently, there has been a very large trial um, using what we call immunotherapy. Now, immunotherapies are, are, and many of you are, are familiar and you've heard it, and you've probably seen these direct-to-consumer marketings about these people playing with their grandkids that are on immunotherapies. You know, this is a very new class of agents. When I say new, really the first immunotherapy approval in the United States was in 2014. So these are, are generally a, a relatively new class of agents that we've learned actually does something at the core of what makes cancer decide to thrive, and that is that it, it is a very good uh, Trojan horse for, for not allowing the body's own immune system to go after it. And what these Im immune checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapies do is it turns off those mechanisms so the tumor can be appropriately recognized by the immune system. And, and typically, either alone or in combination with other drugs, this allows for the immune system actually do its, its work and what it's made to do, which is go after foreign type of things in the body. And, and, and it works really quite well in cervix cancer. A very large trial that was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine that came out of much of Europe um, has actually shown that one of those immunotherapies, a drug called pembrolizumab, some of you are familiar with the, with the, with the um, ads of Keytruda, but with pembrolizumab, we can actually continue to improve survival in certain patients that might have a immune checkpoint inhibitor uh, uh, a reactive type of tumor. Um, so th this now we have a four combination chemotherapy that we use in frontline uh, therapy for, for cervical cancer, and we are continuing to extend survival with this. In addition to this, and I'm going to talk a little bit about precision medicine before I talk about some of these other drugs, but um, precision medicine is something that, that might be used actually rather flippantly, but we use it clinically in a, in a relatively specific way. There's something that we can do. We can actually take the tumors, and uh, there are a number of either companies or actually local labs that can actually do what we call molecular profiling, where we could actually determine what is driving that tumor, what is making that tumor actually work. We could almost be like the tumor whispers, right, to determine really what is what is it, what about this tumor is causing it to be as aggressive or, or potentially have that metastatic potential. And once we have those targets, we could actually develop therapies to go after those targets. And there has been a whole group of what we call targeted therapies. I talked about Avastin. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are more broad, but there's also other drugs. Some, one of these drugs was recently FDA approved for the use in cervical cancer, a drug called Tivdac. This is based on a new manufacturing approach called antibody drug conjugates. Um, and the benefit of these antibody drug conjugates, and we actually conjugate it with the antigen, which is the target that we could see on molecular profiling. So here we have a target, and then we make sort of the weapon that could go against the target. The nice thing about ADCs is it's very quick to be able to develop an ADC. And in fact, it's so quick that we are now developing a whole armamentarium of antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs. Um, my, by my last check, there are approximately nine clinical trials uh, in gynecologic cancers, including cervix cancer, using novel antibody drug conjugates. And I do anticipate when it comes to the emergent, emergent, emerging treatment approaches that we're going to see a whole slew of combination personalized medicine and individualized medicine as a result of the molecular profiling that your doctor and your surgeon will usually take at the initial presentation of the tumor. Okay, and as a result of this, it actually is helping us to improve these outcomes. And we've learned that some of these drugs, when we have the right target and when we have the right drug, we can actually improve this. And I think what we're missing is that we need more of these ADCs and we need more testing for these ADCs. So, so you're going to see and you're going to hear about more of these sort of clinical trials in the coming years. And this will, these are also certain things that will actually help you um, uh, potentially in the future. Now, all of these new drugs have potentially side effects. And this is something that it's important to talk to your provider about, important to talk to them about the side effects, the potential symptoms, some of the discomfort that, that they may experience. Now, certainly on a clinical trial, we could give a litany of some of the things that might happen. That doesn't mean that it will happen. Many of the side effects that we see with some of these newer drugs are, are a little different than the old cytotoxic therapies that we've been using for decades. Okay, the things like the blood count drops are not what we see. We see, for instance, with immunotherapies, different types of toxicities, like interesting rashes, 
and, and certain types of colitis that could cause some GI upset and even some potential dangerous diarrhea. All right, and it's important that you talk to the blanket of care of your provider team to make sure that if there's any of this discomfort that you're experiencing, that you let the provider team know in case something has to be done about it, all right? The same goes for some of these new targeted therapies like the antibody drug conjugates that I mentioned. Some of them do have potential for off-target effects that have nothing to do with the cancer, um, might have some cardiac toxicity or other types of toxicity, and that's why it's critically important to continue to proceed with the testing as provided as 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 recommended by your provider, but certainly keep an open dialogue with the, with the blanket of care of your team to do this. Okay, I'm going to stop there and uh, and turn it back over to Dr. Messner for uh, continued uh, discussions uh, for all of you. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Einstein. That was really excellent and. Um... A wonderful presentation, again, stellar, and lots of information. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Kerr. Dr. Kerr is pathologist of the Hospital of Pathology Associates, Division of Cytopathology, Pulmonary Gynecologic, and Molecular Pathology, Alina Health Laboratories, Alina Health Cancer Institute. And Dr. Kerr will be addressing the role of the pathologist, the importance of the molecular portrait of your cancer, including biomarkers, diagnostic technologies, and sequencing of treatments, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Kerr. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks so much for the opportunity to speak to you today. It is my great pleasure to introduce you all to the role of pathology in the care of patients with cervical cancer. Thanks so much for listening in. Um, first off, I'm a pathologist. What does that mean? Uh, a pathologist is a doctor who goes to medical school, like your other doctors, and then specializes in laboratory testing. So with cervical cancer, I am involved in reading pap smears, uh, overseeing HPV testing, the diagnosis of cervical biopsies and metastatic disease, and the evaluation of LEAP or cone specimens, which I'll talk about in a little bit, or hysterectomy specimens, as Dr. Runowitz described. A pathologist has a laboratory team that helps process and evaluate all of these types of specimens for cervical cancer screening or to make a diagnosis or to determine staging. Next, I'll talk in more detail about how those pap smears, biopsy, and surgical specimens get from a patient to the pathologist for the various tests that are needed for diagnosis and choosing the best therapy. So cervical cancer patients will sometimes have an abnormal pap smear, which is obtained by brushing or scraping the cervix to look for cancer cells or precancer cells under a microscope and to perform testing for the human papillomavirus, or HPV for short. Other patients may present with bleeding from the vagina that is caused by the cancer or have something abnormal seen during a routine pelvic exam. Once the cancer is suspected, the patient will usually have a biopsy or a LEAP, which stands for looped electrosurgical procedure, or a cone excision of the cervix, which removes part of the cervix to make a definitive diagnosis and measure how deep the tumor has invaded into the cervix. Only a pathologist can tell for sure the diagnosis by looking under a microscope at that tissue. And for small tumors, the pathologist makes the most accurate measurement of the extent of invasion into the cervix under a microscope, which is important for determining the next steps in treatment, which is usually deciding whether to observe after complete excision of a very small cancer or to remove the rest of the uterus with a hysterectomy for a slightly larger cancer or for the larger cancers that have been mostly described uh, during this teleconference, proceeding with treatments like radiation therapy and chemotherapy. Part of this evaluation by the pathologist is also determining the tumor type. So cervical cancer is generally divided into HPV-associated cancers and cancers that are not associated with HPV. So as was described earlier, um, HPV-related cancers account for almost all cervical cancers, with rare exceptions, and they come in a variety of types, including squamous cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, adenosquamous 
carcinoma and small cell carcinoma. And these names are all assigned based on what the tumor looks like under a microscope and any additional stains that we apply to that tissue to classify the tumor. And you know, with the exception of small cell carcinoma of the cervix, most types of cervical cancer are treated in the same way regardless of the subtype. So this distinction may not be critically important for this cancer type. But um, I'll mention one type of cervical cancer known as gastric-type cervical adenocarcinoma. And this is a rare cancer that is not associated with HPV and can be rarely associated with a familial cancer syndrome known as Pussy-Eger syndrome. So the pathologist makes the distinction between cervical cancer and endometrial cancer as well, uh, which can be uh, confused for one another at the time of diagnosis due to how close the cervix and endometrium are to one another in the uterus. So occasionally, patients initially thought to have cervical cancer have an endometrial cancer and vice versa due to the close proximity of the cervix and the endometrium in the uterus. And the treatment and genetic implications for endometrial cancer and cervical cancer are very different. So the pathologist tries very hard to make an accurate diagnosis as to where the tumor started. Now this process of making a pathology diagnosis usually takes a few days, but can take longer, depending on if the tumor is of an unusual or rare type where more than one pathologist or extra tests are needed to help make the correct diagnosis. Um, pathology for radical hysterectomy with lymph node biopsies may take a week or two due to the very complex examination of the tissues to determine how far the cancer is spread. A pathology report at the end will be available to you in your medical record to go over with your cancer team. And pathologists, unfortunately or fortunately, <laughs> do use very technical language in these reports um, that may be very difficult to understand. Uh, even for patients with a good medical background. So make sure to go over this report with your care team. Next, I'll talk about those biomarkers and molecular tests in pathology for cervical cancer. The most common test ordered for cervical cancer patients to help choose therapy is called PDL1. Uh, other doctors on this panel have talked about immunotherapy. Um, but I wanted to say it in different words from a pathologist's perspective. So PDL1 is a, a protein that's used by the tumor uh, to hide from the patient's immune system, which the body would otherwise try to use to fight off the cancer like an infection. So drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors, as have been mentioned, or also known by immunotherapy, block the tumor from using that PDL1 to hide from the immune system. So the PDL1 test looks for PDL1 protein by looking at tissue sections of the tumor under a microscope. And the staining pattern for PDL1 is interpreted by a pathologist and is assigned what's called a combined positive score, or CPS for short, which takes into account the number of immune cells and tumor cells that have PDL1 protein. For immunotherapy, the cutoff for treatment using the test is a combined positive score of one, and higher than one may be even better as a predictor of, of response to immunotherapy. Other less common tests that are used, especially if PDO1 is negative, are tumor, tumor mutation burden, which is determined by a next generation sequencing test, mismatch repair enzyme testing, and microsatellite instability which are actually very uncommonly um, abnormal in cervical cancer. These tests provide information about whether the tumor is likely to be recognized by the immune system with some help from immune checkpoint inhibitor drugs. So there are a number of factors your doctor will consider to determine if immunotherapy is likely to help you. Other molecular tests can be used in cervical cancer patients as well, as was mentioned by Dr. Einstein. These tests, uh, such as next-generation sequencing, are usually used for patients that have progressive or persistent disease after the first-line standard treatments. So for cervical cancer and next-generation sequencing, we are often looking for a needle in a haystack since there are not as many approved targeted treatments as there are for other tumors like lung cancer. Sometimes these tests do find genetic changes in the DNA sequence of the cancer, 
that could match well with a treatment that is available for a different cancer type, or as Dr. Einstein mentioned, that is part of a clinical trial. So ask your doctor about this testing if you are in a situation of still having the cancer progress after standard treatment. And then finally, I'll give some tips about electronic medical records and communicating with your team virtually between in-person appointments. A lot of your medical records and communications with doctors uh, are, are now online, and this technology has greatly improved during the COVID pandemic. So if you have an online portal to your medical records, you may notice that your test results and CT scans and MRIs and so forth are available immediately to you online, even before your oncologist has had a chance to see them. And this is because there was a change to the law to make these records available to you right away after they're uh, released by the pathologist or the radiologist. This can be um, very empowering to have this transparency. It can also be very scary and confusing when you want to know what the reports mean and can't reach your doctor right away. So I, I recommend that you work with your team to have a communication plan about your test results and be prepared for what to expect. You can often send a message to your team with questions and concerns right from your phone or your computer, and they can send a message back through the online portal. And this can be a great way to keep in touch with your cancer team between your in-person and virtual telehealth appointments. I can tell you that you know, I do this with my doctors too for my healthcare, and it really works great. Um, when you do have a telehealth or in-person appointment, uh, it can also be helpful to prepare a list of questions so you don't forget to ask anything that you really needed to ask during your appointment. Okay, that's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening. I'm now turning the conference back over to Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Kerr. That was an outstanding, an outstanding presentation and a really you know, it's very rare for people to hear a presentation from a pathologist, and you are really our, you are our ongoing pathologist on many of our programs, and give our patients a chance to hear from a pathologist and to hear all that you do and what an important role you play in their care. So I just um, want to thank you very much. I know there'll be questions for you um, during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian. Michael E. DeBake, EVA Medical Center, and she'll be discussing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Burton. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Um, so nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the tolerance to your treatment, but providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Now, during treatment, your diet might be modified just based on your unique needs. Um, each patient's going to have a different treatment plan. Each patient's going to have their unique um, response to treatment. And so the side effects are going to vary from patient to patient. But some potential side effects you may experience include things like poor appetite, nausea, vomiting, maybe a sore mouth, diarrhea, um, or fatigue. Um, but during your course of treatment, <clears throat> Um, even your nutrition plan can change just based on the side effects that you're experiencing. And so recognizing that the dietitian is part of your healthcare team is important because the dietitian can serve as a resource for you. Um, not only can we give you information about nutrition goals, just in general about um, about other comorbidities you may be dealing with simultaneously, in, you know, out, in conjunction with your cancer treatment, um, but also in relationship to um, ideas on how to get what you need in nutritionally with the side effects that you're experiencing. So um, and nutrition is very important. If you don't meet your nutrition needs, if you're really struggling um, in, in getting being hydrated and getting enough nutrition and you're losing weight unintentionally, some, some of these things may result in even a delay in treatment. So um, connect, connecting with your dietitian early on can be very helpful. There are medications to help with the side effects. And so please talk with your healthcare team. Many times I, I you know, connect with patients and they're taking um, a lot of different medications and it becomes very overwhelming and confusing about when to take what and, you know, any special, um, you know, you know, 
directions on should I not eat or you know should I eat with this and that sort of thing. So. Talking with your team about that is important. Having a second set of ears is also very helpful. Now, if you're having side effects and issues with what you're eating, jot that down. Take a mental note of it. Um, and then when you're meeting with your dietitian, talk with them about areas that you're struggling with. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, if someone is struggling with fatigue, for example, shopping for groceries, preparing meals can be very challenging. And so a dietitian, for example, could give you ideas on um, very well-nourished um, meals and snacks that provide that really require little to no preparation. Um, and, you know, that can be very helpful. Now, hydration is something that we oftentimes look over, um, only because we're focusing on are you eating enough, are you getting, you know, getting your meals in, but hydration is very, very important, and dehydration can actually amplify some of the side effects that you may experience, such as nausea and fatigue. And dehydration can also, you, also have you feel very dizzy and lightheaded, maybe even give you some headaches. Um, and most of the time, if you're not eating well, you're usually not drinking as much. But fluids are anything that's liquid at room temperature. So things like water, milk, sports drinks, um, juice, fruit juice. Um, a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. Um, and treatment such as radiation, um, sometimes chemotherapies, um, may require an increase in fluid. It just depends on your response to the treatment. If you're having side effects such as diarrhea and things like that, your fluid needs um, may need to be um, assessed. And so um, in closing, I just want you to, to remember that a dietitian is part of your healthcare team or help we're here to help support you. And so, um, you know, reach out to us and, and just know how to get in touch with, with all of your healthcare team members. The sooner that you let us know, the sooner we can help you. Um, so in closing, I want to thank you for letting me be part of today's workshop, and I'm going to pass the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Bearden. That was really an outstanding presentation. I know there were questions for you during the Q&A. There always are. So thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ms. Aisha McClellan, and Ms. McClellan is the Cervical Program Coordinator for Share Cancer Support, and she'll be addressing SHARE's free services and programs and their national helpline and website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. McClellan. Hi, thank you for having me today. Um, my name is Aisha, and I'm the Cervical Cancer Program Coordinator at SHARE Cancer Support, and I'm also a metastatic cervical cancer survivor. Um, our Cervical Cancer Program offers support to those with a cervical cancer diagnosis through educational programs, support groups, and a helpline. Our groups are all peer-led, and they are held twice a month. One is focused on cervical cancer, and another is focused on young women's gyne cancer. Our helpline is answered by someone who has firsthand knowledge of a cervical cancer diagnosis. And I truly value being able to utilize my experiences to help make a difference in people's lives and be the person that I needed to others when I was diagnosed. Uh, today, we officially launched our text feature of our helpline, which we are really excited about. Uh, being able to broaden our reach to help as many people as we can with their diagnosis is so important. To learn more about our programs or to view past webinars, please visit sharecancersupport.org. And thank you for allowing me to be a part of this workshop today. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Collin. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, and um, excellent presentation. Thank you. A wonderful resource for everybody on the call today. That's why we partnered with um, Share Cancer Support. Just wonderful resources. And our next speaker is Ms. Samantha Fortune. Ms. Fortune is the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and she'll be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and um, she'll tell you how to contact us both um, on the telephone, 800 number, and also um, on our website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner mentioned, my name is Sam Fortune, and I'm the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator, as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. 
Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional supportive services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling services, support groups, educational workshops like this one, publications, and limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and family impacted by cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with cervical cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by either either joining a support group or engaging in counseling. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services as well. Being a member of a support group can offer the opportunity for others to speak with one another who's going through similar experience as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers um, Pacific GYN cancer support groups online and then also a local um, women's support group. The GYN Cancer Online Support Group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of empowerment, provide practical information about your treatment and resources, and address ways to communicate with your, um, either your treatment team or your loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by oncology social workers who can offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can register to join for an online support group through our, um, our website at cancercare.org by selecting our services and then selecting support groups. After completing the registration on our website, you can participate in the group by posting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals also may experience some practical and financial concerns throughout your treatment. Please know that if you're encountering such hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help. Cancer Care also offers a resource navigation service, which is a short-term strength-based approach to help both patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. Um, you will work with a trained specialist who will help a client connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the support service, supportive services we have at Cancer Care, I will encourage you to call um, Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how cervical cancer diagnosis can impact someone, as well as their loved ones. We're here to offer you support throughout this experience, and we look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be part of this program. Thank you for um, taking the time to listen, and I'm going to turn the program now back to, back to Dr. Mister. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune, and um, thank you for reviewing all the services Cancer Care. Again, another great resource for our participants. And now we're going to move on to the questions and answers, and I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. So I want to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Emma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And so we have a question from our participants. Um, and this would be for Dr. Runowitz. For how long the HPV vaccine, vaccination is good? Is good for for how long is the HPV vaccine vaccination good? Do you need a, a HPV vaccine booster? If you could address this question, Dr. Runowitz. That that's a very good question, especially given the um, vaccination that we've done for COVID. Um, to my knowledge, you do you get your initial series of three injections and then you are okay and there are no boosters. But I would just like Dr. Einstein to weigh in on that just to make sure that there isn't something new that I've missed. No, no, you're absolutely right, Dr. Ronowitz. And, and for, for, the, for the group, uh, as opposed to some other vaccines and Dr. Ronowitz mentioned, COVID vaccine, what we've learned about HPV vaccination, which we didn't know when we were doing some of the trials in the 90s, is this this is a high and sustained immune response in addition to the fact that there is what we call immune memory with this response, meaning that if somebody potentially gets a new challenge, like a new HPV infection, which is incredibly common and incredibly ubiquitous, the body does a great job in mounting an immune response. And there was actually a nice trial showing just how much the body amounts to the immune response. This was actually done in Brazil. Obviously, we're not challenging patients with a new HPV infection, but we can give them a four shot. And we, we did a four shot, and 
their their immune responses to the fourth shot was as high, if not higher, than their prior shot, which just shows that the body can actually mount that immune response with that with with a new challenge. And so, you know, to Dr. Ronowitz's point, we don't recommend boosters at this time. If anything, many countries are we're realizing that there actually may be comparative effectiveness with just giving two shots. In the United States, we just recommend two shots for uh, if boys or girls get it before the age of 15. Um, in much of Canada, in Mexico, and much of the rest of the world, it's just two shots, and two shots might be enough. Excellent. Well, thank you. Okay, very good. Um, and then um, for Dr. Um, Einstein, um, what is the difference between a pap test and a HPV DNA test? No, it's a, that's a great question. And, you know, our Dr. Kerr had addressed what what we've done, and we've been doing pap tests since routinely since the 50s after George Papanikolaou figured out there there might be some cells that we could look at under a microscope to 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 make us uh, be able to think that there might be some sloughing from precancer or cancerous cells. Um, Dr. Zerhausen, who won the Nobel Prize for what would be discovering that the relationship between HPV and cervix cancer, now we have a molecular test, an HPV test that we could actually do. Um, in terms of the sampling, it's the same. So it's in the United States, it's a provider-based sampling. It goes in the same liquid media, whether it's cytology and HPV, and both can be tested there, and including other types of things can be tested in that media, including sexually transmitted infections and other types of things too. But that's in the United States. The, the, the sampling is the same, but the ordering and what we do as a result of any abnormalities differs uh, depending on what the results show. Excellent. And Dr. Kurt, do you want to add anything to that? Oh, no. I, uh, well, I'll add just a little bit. So um, when I look at a pap test, uh, there are actually sort of two steps involved. So most pap tests in the United States are, are prepared using a liquid-based medium, which means that the cells sort of settle in a circle on the slide. And then we have cytotechnologists who, are, who specialize in looking at those cells, and they mark on the slide cells that, that look abnormal to them. And then those abnormal cells are reviewed um, by a pathologist, so me under the microscope, and we decide how to classify the, um, the PAP as you know, negative, atypical, or, or uh, a lesion. Uh, in addition to that, we've discovered that HPV testing either by itself or in combination with looking at those cells um, can be used uh, to improve screening for cervical cancer. So there are sometimes PAP tests that are negative to our uh, microscopy, looking at the cells under a microscope, but there's a positive HPV test. And depending on the combination of results, women will be referred um, accordingly either for colposcopy or be, be observed. So it, it's a complex algorithm, but we're very glad that we have both tests now instead of just the, the looking under the microscope. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, this is a question for Dr. Einstein. Can I have sex during treatment? Will my sex life change after treatment? No, it's an excellent question. You know, we, when we, 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 we speak frankly, and I think most provider teams will speak frankly about, about intercourse and sex. And, and um, depending on what treatment is going on, uh, this is a quality of life thing, and this is something intimacy is critically important for our patients um, with their partners. And uh, we do address this head on, and it really depends on their treatment. If they're having radiation treatment, a lot of times uh, things aren't feeling right. Um, there might be some dryness, there might be some raw areas, and, and sex might be uncomfortable. So as I talk to all of our, our patients about this, it's critically important that you have that discussion with you know, with your partner about about um, about that the, the, that sort of intimacy. With regards to treatment with chemotherapy, um, most of the time there's no there's no issues with with having sex. Um, uh, that being said, it really depends on the patient. The patient should really sort of call the shots on 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 how they feel about this. And if there's some issues with regards to um, some vaginal dryness after after treatment or during surveillance. These are things that can be actually addressed head-on, and it's important to have that conversation. If your provider doesn't bring it up, you bring it up with your provider because there's a lot of things 
that we could do, uh, not just medicines, but other techniques that we could do and we could offer, including the use of, um, of pelvic floor therapy and other types of things that would, could actually help improve the sex lives of our patients who are survivors. And another question for you, um, what other treatment options if I want to have children in the future? That's an excellent question, and 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 uh, it really depends on on the stage. And Dr. Ronowitz did mention uh, that there are differences in how we actually assess the stage of, of of cancers. But in early early stage or even micro, what we call microinvasive cervical cancers, there are minimally invasive and minimal procedures that we can do that could absolutely maintain. Uh, fertility. Um, part of it depends on the location of the tumor. Part of it depends on sort of the histology of the tumor, and it depends on the stage. Um, things like a, what we call a cone biopsy of the cervix. Dr. Kerr mentioned that earlier. In addition to potentially doing what we call a radical trachelectomy, where we remove just the cervix and we maintain the uterus. Um, and sometimes we have to use assisted reproductive technologies to help with this. Um, if um, you are in a, a place or you have, uh, you have to have a discussion with your provider. Sometimes before we start treatment, we can actually store gametes. Um, I don't want to say that this is a complete replacement for, uh, for, for uh, a sort of, shall I say, the, the fecundity or being able to get pregnant, but it might be an option depending on how quickly um, uh, an individual has to undergo that treatment. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, so this is for Dr. Runowitz. Who is part of my medical team for um, cervical cancer? Do I need both a gynecologist and oncologist? So uh, it depends on your team. Uh, in my experience and in my practice, the patients um, would come referred by a gynecologist and then um, I would assume complete care of the patient uh, with regards to the, either the surgery or arranging for the radiation and the concomitant chemotherapy um, and then following the patient. Um, but other um, practices may be um, if the patient is going to have a radical hysterectomy, for example, she may have that surgery with a G1 oncologist and she may get referred back to the general gynecologist. And if so, she definitely should have a survivor's plan uh, so that the frequency of exams, uh, further testing um, is concordant with what one would do if one stayed with the GYN oncologist. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and, um, The question for Dr. Einstein: Do can genital warts and/or HPV types that cause these genital warts lead to cervical cancer, or is a different type of HPV that causes cervical cancer? Yeah, excellent, excellent question. And uh, uh, there are over 40 HPV types that we know that infect the anogenital tract. Um, most of those types cause nothing: no warts, no precancer, nothing. They're just skin. HPV infections that, that don't lead to really anything. Um, some cause warts, two in particular. Uh, two types cause warts, 6 and 11. Um, there's uh, uh, about 13 that we know are associated with cancer. Um, uh, warts themselves don't, don't, you know, the warty types don't cause cancer. They don't lead to malignant transformation. But a, a third of the time when someone has uh, a warty type, they might actually have a high-risk HPV type. Um, and so uh, they might it, it might be admixed, and depending on where the wart is, um, sometimes we have to biopsy it to see if there might be a combination of not just warts but dysplasia. That being said, we actually have prevention of all this um, in the, the, the non-ovalent vaccine. That is the only HPV vaccine that is marketed in the United States. We could prevent warty types and, you know, like seven of the, uh, of the 13 uh, oncogenic types that cause uh, literally over 80% of the disease. So, so, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure here. It's really important that we advocate for and, and, and make sure that we get vaccinated. Excellent. Um, and um, question uh, for Dr. Um, Einstein again, is there an expanding role for immunotherapy in cervical cancer treatment versus chemo? 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, we 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 are we've already uh, have our first approval in cervix cancer for an immunotherapy, and um, there are a number of clinical trials um, with uh, single as well as combination immunotherapies. And you know, when I'm talking about these immunotherapies, we're talking about like what Dr. Kerr described earlier with 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 these PDL1 receptor positive um, uh, cancer cells, but there are other types of immunotherapies that are in clinical trials right now. Um, there's T-cell-based therapies. There's other vectors that we're using that appear to have actually a lot of promise um, in the cervix cancer world, and, and it, there's really an explosion of, of really trying to make the immune system work better, um, and uh, it makes a lot of sense for something that is uh, we know is a uh, cancer that is related to a virus, and so it makes a lot of sense that if we could really boost the immune system, we could we could probably either prevent or treat the cancer even better. Excellent. And I'm just going to ask for everyone to give takeaways, um, starting with uh, 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 Dr. Ronowitz uh, to um, Ms. Fortune. So we'll go through everybody um, just to give a takeaway. So Dr. Ronowitz, do you want to start? What would people sure. take away from today's program? Sure. I think what, what you hopefully have come away with is that um, the treatment team is a treatment team. It's not a one person. And, and so I think it's very important that and if you're going to have surgery, a GYN oncologist, if radiation, um, the radiation oncologist, and many of these decisions are made at a tumor board where your tumor is presented. So I think the multidisciplinary team is critical to the success of the treatment. And then there's one other factor, Dr. Einstein was talking about prevention, um, and we haven't mentioned smoking. And it's really important that if you are a smoker that you undergo smoking cessation at some point because there's clearly a relationship between cervical smoking, um, I'm sorry, between smoking and cervical cancer. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Einstein? Yeah, thank you all for, for coming on and, and talking to us. And, you know, I, I want to just add that, that really primary prevention is something we really want to have a big focus on. And, yes, we have, I think, excellent uh, treatment options now. Um, we have certainly good treatment options for locally advanced cancer, and we have uh, what I would consider developing and, and promise for the future for recurrent cervical cancer. Um, but we still have a lot of work to do, um, and we're going to continue to do this. I think, you know, a lot of our focus really should be on making sure that we spread the word for primary prevention with HPV vaccination, which is a cancer vaccine, as well as uh, routine um, screening. Uh, and, and this is something that should be accessible anywhere um, in North America. Excellent. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, Dr. Kerr? Oh, thank you. I, uh, I always recommend to patients regarding pathology to try to keep track of your actual pathology reports, either electronically or on paper, because we're all, we're all hoping that you're going to be cured of your cervical cancer and live many years beyond. And what, what happens um, when you survive your cervical cancer and live for many years after is that you, know, you might have imaging because you had pain somewhere and there's a little nodule that shows up say, in the lung, and you'll have a biopsy of it. And then I'm looking at it, and I need to know exactly what type of cervical cancer you had before um, so that I can make the appropriate diagnosis for whatever new lesion has popped up. Um, so keep track of that report. I can't tell you how many times I wish that I had a patient's pathology report you know, 15, 20 years prior to know exactly what, what type of cancer was there. Excellent. Thank you. And um, thank you so much. And Ms. McClellan? Yeah, um, my biggest takeaway is that um, it's really exciting to see all the advances in treatment for cervical cancer, and it just goes to show how effective the HPV vaccine is and um, just overall advocating for yourself. And, um, and it's you know, I'm glad to be able to offer resources and support for those diagnosed with cervical cancer at SHARE. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Ms. Fortune? 
I would say that going through cancer diagnosis is very stressful and overwhelming, both um, emotionally, financially, physically, and you don't have to suffer with that alone. There's a lot of resources um, that can help you cope, including, like I mentioned earlier, the support groups, counseling services, and like um, different facilities that can help you find financial resources. Excellent. Thank you so much. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. I also want to thank our participants who really asked such really great questions. Although we've done this program before, I have to say the questions this time were actually incredibly thoughtful and important and, and really could be expanded upon um, in great detail by our speakers. So I, I guess I want to thank this. So what is the synergy between the speakers and the participants? However, I do want to acknowledge that there are many more questions in queue they were able to take. So I want to actually talk about that a bit. Um, so. Um, for those of you who either asked a question, are in queue to ask a question, or have a question that you're thinking of liking to ask, for all of you, I want you to go back to your treating healthcare team and ask the question of them, the same question you asked here today, or wish to ask. Because I think that you've learned things on today's program, of course, and what you've learned today will better inform your question, and will also better inform your ability to, to hear the answer and to ask a follow-up question of your healthcare teams. That's really important um, that you take what you learned today and use it with your questions to your healthcare team about you and how all of this applies to you. Um, most importantly, and I think what Ms. Fortune said, is we don't want anyone to feel that you're coping with, with um, cervical cancer, any type of cancer alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support and, um, and that you can access these resources, which are free, in addition to your healthcare team. Also, I do want to remind all of you that um, often issues arise evenings, weekends, and holidays. It seems that always people have questions at that time, and I would encourage you to talk to your healthcare team and find out who is available evenings, weekends, and holidays so that you always have someone that you can call and if you should have a question at those when on non-business hours where you work. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to I wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.